back to the event of the day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the event upon which we as Christians base our faith, an event that took place almost 2,000 years ago. The timing is right. The first day of Passover, uh, which is connected with Easter, uh, pre preceded Easter, was this past Monday. And about this time of the year, Jesus Christ was arrested, illegally tried, crucified, buried, and then rose from the dead on the third day. So let's read one of the accounts. We're going to read the account in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. That's the word about Gospels, by the way. A Gospel is simply an account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many Gospels. Uh, only four of them are inspired by God and included in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're reading from one of those inspired accounts that has been saved for us over the last 2,000 years so we can write, read what an eyewitness had to say. Matthew 28, verse 1 says this. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. The other Mary was not Jesus' mother, but there were other women. The Sabbath would have ended approximately 6 o'clock the night before this. The, the Jewish Sabbath runs from 6 o'clock on Friday night to, or sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. And these two women and others are, are said to have gone to the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ to anoint his body for burial. But he was already dead. Yeah, but it was in such a hurry on the day of the crucifixion that they didn't feel he had been properly treated. And so they went to take care of that. If you read the account of, uh, of, of the resurrection in Mark's gospel, by the way, the second one, Matthew, and then Mark, it says that the women were worried as they went to the tomb because there was a great stone in front of the door of the tomb to keep robbers and predators and so forth out. And they wondered, how are we going to get this stone rolled out of the way? Because it secured the tomb. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So sometime prior to the arrival of the women, not necessarily while they were walking in, Jesus' resurrection had been accompanied by a violent earthquake, associated with an angel coming down from heaven to roll away this stone that the women were worried about that, that had been in front of the door of the tomb. I'm going to show you a picture of that in just a minute. Verse 3, about this angel, his countenance or his face was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Verse 4, and the guards, there were multiple guards uh, in front of the door, uh, more than two. I'll show you why we know that in a minute. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So these, these soldiers, these battle-hardened guys just were immobilized by the power of this angel that came down. Verse 5, but the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 6, and this is our verse, he is not here, for he is risen as he said or just as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Now, stopping there for just a minute, there's that preposition, uh, he, he is risen just as he said, and that word means just as or even as, and that's the reason I stuck it in, that's the reason we had it on our, on our invitation, and it does appear in some translations of Scripture. Jesus had told them several times that he would rise again on the third day. 
If he had failed to rise on the third day, like he said, he would have been a deceiver, unworthy of further devotion, but he did what he said he was going to do. He kept his promise. Now, a uh, couple of photographs that, uh, of uh, the, the tomb area. This is, you remember the, the phrase Golgotha in Scripture, the place of the skull? And can you see that that sort of looks like the face of a skull? We think that's probably where Jesus was crucified, right down in front of this place, which happens to be a bus station, <laughs> a kind of smelly, dirty place. Wasn't a very pleasant place in the day of Christ. Then the next, the next slide shows the, the, the tomb that, that possibly was the tomb of Jesus. It's very near that escarpment of rock that we just looked at. And if you look down at the very bottom of that picture, you can see the doorway that goes into the tomb. You can see, con- you can see what looks like concrete blocks. It's, you know, it's crumbled over the last 2,000 years and repairs uh, have been made. Uh, if, you, if, you were, if, we were able to, if we had a good enough photo, you could see that there's somebody had chiseled the sign of the fish above the door, which was the you know, people in Jesus' day and shortly after didn't use the sign of the cross. Uh, to indicate their faith. They indicated that they used the sign of the fish, and it's, it's there. But right along the bottom, underneath the door, it looks like a, like a little ledge along there. That's actually a trough. It's about, it's about that wide. Uh, and a, uh, a, a big stone wheel. You know, we might think of a, a boulder, but a big stone wheel rolled in that, uh, that, that uh, shaft right there. And, and so they would roll it over in front of the door to keep out any predators or robbers or anything like that. And then it took a lot of power to roll it away from the door again. That's the stone that we're talking about here. But this empty tomb right here is the first great fact confronting the women who went to the tomb and later to the men who came to the tomb. Now, various theories, of course, have been offered over the years as to what happened. Uh, in this particular situation, you know, and and I'm not going to go over all the theories, but the only theory of what happened that can satisfy the evidence that is available and and, and can can explain the the survival of faith of the, the followers of Jesus is the fact that the risen Christ was not in that tomb. That's why it was empty. Jesus had resurrected from the dead and was, had paid the price of people's sins. And so verse 6 again says, the angel said, he is not here. He's not in this empty tomb anymore, for he is risen just as he said, like he promised. Come see the place where he lay. Verse 7, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee, northern Israel. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And by the way, they did see Jesus in Galilee, but this does not preclude the fact that they saw him other places before they got to Galilee. One of those, we're going to read about one of those times in verse 8, or beginning in verse 8. So they quick, went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Verse 9, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. (laughs) There he was all of a sudden, not the angel, but Jesus himself saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by his feet and worshiped him. And verse 10 says, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, my brothers, to go to Galilee. He said my disciples, my followers uh, earlier, but now he says, uh, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, as I've stated, there's an abundance of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the empty tomb. And uh, while we can't say for sure this is the place, it certainly does meet all the qualifications, and I could go further uh, into that. 
There is the eyewitness testimony, and it is recorded uh, in Scripture, and it is trustworthy. There's the renewed faith of his followers, these guys who ran and hid uh, when Jesus was being crucified, these guys that gave up and were just going to go back to, their, uh, to their, their former life. Some of them, they were fishermen. These guys all of a sudden were standing up for the faith. All of a sudden were willing to, to, to suffer and die for the one that they had seen. Each year around this period of time, there starts to become, be documentaries, you know, that come on television about the life of Jesus and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and and uh, uh, it increased this time of the year. Uh, and, and, you know, somebody's always going to be critical of truth. And there's crit criticisms of the resurrection. And there are a lot of uh, false gospels, non-canonical gospels, means ones that weren't included uh, in the scripture. And some of them go back uh, to the third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. And there may be elements of truth in those, but they come along too late and they have been rejected over the years because they are false. There have always been critics of the resurrection starting when these women first saw Jesus and they were leaving to go tell the rest the criticism started right there, beginning Matthew 28, verse 11. says this, As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. Now, let me just stop there for a minute. It started right away. What are we going to do? How are we going to cover this up? How are we going to lie about the resurrection uh, of Jesus? I like that phrase, some of the guards went into the city. That indicates that there were guards. You know, were, and, and if some went, there had to be some left behind, right? So we're probably talking about numerous guys that were armed and ready to stop anybody from breaking into this tomb. So you got a tomb with this big rock on top of it, and you got these seasoned soldiers, these tough guys, these guys that are not afraid to kill somebody and would not be punished if they did kill somebody. Uh, so uh, that's the picture that we get here. And so these guys went back to tell the, the leaders, the religious leaders, what had happened. Verse 12, a meeting of the elders, the Jewish elders were called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. These guys weren't particularly well paid, just like police officers and, and military people and so forth today. They're not the best paid people in the world. These are not well paid guys. They decided to give these guys a big bribe. Verse 13, they told the soldiers this, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and they stole the body. I guess that makes some sense to some people, but you see what I'm talking about? This, the big rock, the big rock wheel weighing tons that covers up the door. And then you got this group of soldiers, I don't know how many, but more than two or three, armed, tough, hardened soldiers. And somebody's going to sleep, they're all sound asleep on their job, and somebody's going to slip up, roll that big rock out of the way and steal the body of Jesus. It just doesn't really make any sense. You know, it's just something they came up with at the last minute. So they, they, uh, they said, but that's what we want you to tell everybody. Verse 14, if the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. Verse 15, so the guards accepted the bribe. They needed a little bit of money. You know, I couldn't pay the bills. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Now, what day? Well, it's still going on today, but what this is talking about is, is when Matthew wrote the gospel down. Now, in spite of all the criticism, and their continual criticism, many Americans, as a matter of fact, most Americans who are surveyed still believe that Jesus died on the cross 
and rose the third day. I find that kind of amazing myself that most Americans still believe it, but uh, I, you know, great search engines on computers and everything. Uh, I found a Rasmussen report from last year entitled Americans Believe in Jesus Christ's Resurrection is even, Americans Believe is even higher this Easter. A new Rasmussen Reports National Telephone Survey finds that 77% of American adults believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God sent to earth to die for our sins. 14% don't believe that that's true. I, I, did, I looked at the, at the survey question. They were pointed. Do you believe it or not? You know, they were very pointed. No coming in the back door trying to get people to say things they don't believe. The survey uh, of 1,000 American adults was conducted on March the 22nd and 23rd, 2016 by Rasmussen Reports. The margin of sampling error is plus or minus three percentage points with a 95% level of confidence. And I'm sure people that do surveys would know exactly what that was about. But a lot of Americans, it's amazing, with all the criticism and all the documentaries and all the movies that criticize and all this kind of stuff, a high percentage of Americans still believe that Jesus is the Christ, the God of heaven who came to this earth and died on the cross to pay the price of our sins. Jesus came and he said, I'm God. Uh, I've come to earth in human form, and I'm going to prove it to you by dying and rising again on the third day. He said it, and he did it in the big city of Jerusalem, over uh, probably about a million people in Jerusalem at that time, so there were plenty of eyewitnesses. And our question is, so what? Who cares? What difference does that make to me, man? I just got to get up and make a living uh, every day. What are the implications for my life? How do I apply that to me? How can something that happened 2,000 years ago have any possible bearing on my life and what's going on in the United States of America today? Well, there are two very important truths we learn from Easter, a lot of truths, but two that I'm going to talk to you about today. If you understand these truths and you put them into your life, I believe your stress level will go down dramatically. Wouldn't that be nice? Huh? Wouldn't that be nice for stress level to go down? Uh, and I think your, your peace of mind will increase dramatically. So what we're going to talk about for a couple of minutes here is just, two, this, just this. Two truths that Easter proves. And the first one is this. God's in control. Now, if I really believed that 100% all the time, I wouldn't ever worry about anything or be stressed. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a confession to you. You won't believe this, but I'm stressed. Some. A lot. It depends on the time of the year. Right? I worry about stuff. I shouldn't. If I really believe that, God's in control. That, that doesn't mean I'm never going to suffer, never going to have any problems, but God is in control. There's a couple of verses of Scripture in Proverbs, the, the wisdom book. Proverbs 16, 19 says this, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And Proverbs 19 and verse 21 says, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. In other words, we make the plans, but it all works into God's plan. God determines the outcome. For example, uh, there's a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. God did not force Judas to betray him. Judas made his own plan, but his action was a part of God's overall plan. There was a guy in the Old Testament by the name of Joseph. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He got sold into slavery by his brothers because they didn't like him. Uh, had, a, had a tough life ended up you know being number two guy in in the land of Egypt and his brothers were under him later in his life and they thought that uh, they, he was going to kill him or something 
But this is what he said to them in Genesis chapter 50 and verse, tw- verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me. That's why you did what you did. You weren't trying to be in God's will or, or you know, promote God's plan or anything of that nature. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people, all the people of Israel. Now, what happened in Jesus' case was this. The religious leaders of Jesus' time were against him. He was upsetting their plans. And so they said, let's get rid of Jesus. We'll kill him, and it'll be all over with, and then we can go back to business as normal. What they didn't realize is they were just fitting right in to God's plan. Jesus Christ said, I came to the earth to die on the cross for the sins of all people, and I'm going back up three days later. I'm going to resurrect again three days later. So while these Jewish leaders were making their plans, God was really in control. We make the plans. God determines the outcome. Now, practically speaking, here's one thing I think you can take from that, which is this. I arrive at emotional maturity in my life at the moment I realize that most of my life is beyond my control. Now, I don't mean just go do anything you want because you don't have any control over it. No, there's some things you can do. But most of your life is beyond your control. You didn't choose when you were going to be born or where you were going to be born or who your parents were going to be, what your race was going to be, what your nationality was going to be, what your language was going to be, what your natural talents and abilities were going to be. You didn't choose any of that. And even today, you can control some things. You can control your reactions, your actions and your reactions to things, but you cannot control the events that go on around you. You can't change the past, and you cannot predict the future. You can't add two hours to your day or two inches to your height. You can't force people to think and do what you want them to think and do. Parents are aware of that very well. You can't control the economy. You can't be sure that your job is always going to be there or that you have chosen the right career or the right job. You can't make people love you. You can't keep your parents or your loved ones from aging, getting sick, or passing away. Most of the things that really count in life are beyond your control and beyond my control. Now, here's what causes stress. Stress is caused by trying to control the uncontrollable, by trying to manage the unmanageable, by trying to make people do and see things my way, by trying to make things happen that I cannot control. That brings worry, and worry is waste. And don't we all waste too much of our time because we worry about stuff? Remember this. While I cannot control much of my life and many of the things that happen to me, I can control my responses. I can do the right thing. I can control how I react to things. I can choose, get up in the morning and say, this is the right thing to do today, and I am going to do it. That's all I can control. What anybody else does, what anybody else says, how everybody else reacts, it's it's gone. I mean, I I, I can't do that. I, I can't say, well, I'm a failure because somebody else didn't do what I wanted them to do. Right? Uh, But here is what what we can really hang our hats on is this. On the other hand, God is in complete control. There is nothing that God cannot control because God made it all. So he controls everything. He's the absolute power. 
He can do anything he wants to do. Now, you and I may not understand why he does what he does. And that's okay. I have some explanations, but just because I could give an explanation for some of the things you question wouldn't necessarily satisfy you. But how does this help me to know that God is in complete control? How is the fact that God's in control, how does that comfort me? How does it reduce my stress? Well, it should reduce it because God says that he wants to use his great power to help you manage the unmanageable. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago is available to you. Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus, and I love this passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 says, he says to the church, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for who? For us who believe him. I want you to understand the incredible greatness of God's power for those who believe him. And then the rest of that verse and the next verse, he says this, this is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's the power that's available to you as a follower of Jesus. The same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. What power that is, but there's a condition. It is available to those who believe. You have to trust God. I, I, I knew you were going to say that. You have to trust God. That doesn't mean blindly, but you have to trust God. You have to say things like, Father, I've been trying to make this relationship work. It's not... I just turn it over to you. You're going to have to take this and I, I, I can do my part, but I can't control him or I can't control her. Father, my finances are a mess. Please help me. I, I'm willing to do things your way and I, it took me a while to get here. It's going to take me a while to get out, but I'm turning it all over to you. How do I know? How do I know when I'm really trusting God to help me with a problem? This, I, I hate to say this, but this is the answer to it. It's when I stop worrying. That, that's what, when I'm worrying, it lets me know that I am not really turning it over to God. I talk big talk, but I'm not really turning it over to God. Worry is a warning light, and it says, I'm trying to be God instead of letting God be God and me just do the right thing that he wants me to do. God says this in Isaiah 41 and 10. I know it's Old Testament. I know he's talking to Israel, but I think it applies to us as well. He said, don't be afraid. For I am with you. Now, guys, afraid as much as I am, you love to hear God say, Don't be afraid, I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. Have any problem with fear or discouragement in your life? Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious hand. He's got the power, He's in control. So, What's out of control in your life? And I know there's some stuff that's out of control in your life. What's out of control in your life? What is it about your life that no matter how hard you try, you can't quite seem to get it together? You know, you just thought you had it, you know, and then something goes off in that direction. That's the big stuff, marriage, career, finances, health, children, nobody will ever love me, you know, those kinds of things. What is it that you worry about most? In your life, I got moles in my yard, tearing it up. It bothers me a lot. I worry about that too much, you know. I'm only kidding there. What is it? What is it that worries you the most in life? 
Would you agree that God has resources that you do not have when it comes to taking care of those situations? He wants to help you, but you have to believe him and turn it over to him. And you just do that over and over and over again. We're not talking about being saved and going to heaven here. Just do it over and over and over again. So two truths that Easter proved. Number one, God is in control. And the other one is our theme for the weekend, which is this. God keeps his promises. God is in control, and God keeps his promises. For thousands of years before Jesus came to earth, died on the cross, rose again, returned to heaven, God promised that's what's going to happen. Messiah is coming. Messiah is going to take care of your sins. He predicted a lot of events, according, uh, including his crucifixion and resurrection in great detail in Old Testament scripture. He promised to show us how to live a better life, promised to show us how to get to heaven and live eternally with him. God always keeps his promises. Another Old Testament scripture, Numbers chapter 27, 23, verse 19, says this, God is not a man, so he does not lie. You and I, we lie. We exaggerate. We leave stuff out. We try to make ourselves look good. We're human. Humans do that. No excuse for it, but we do it. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He's not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. Has he ever promised and not carried it through? The answer is no. I looked at BibleInfo.com yesterday, and it says there are 3,573 promises from God in the Bible. Then I looked at BibleGateway.com, and it said there's 5,467 promises in the Bible. I don't know how many promises there are in the Bible, but there's a bunch of promises uh, in the Bible, right? A bunch of them. And if we know and believe the promises of God, we won't worry. You don't have to know all 5,000 or 3,000 or 2,500 or however many there are. But if we know some promises uh, that God has made for us, we won't worry. Now, here's a couple of promises that, that God has made. Now, Friday night, we talked about three promises. God promises a future, a friend, and a family. Uh, and as they're sort of all, those three are included in uh, the two that we're going to look at as we close today. But here's the first promise. The first, first promise has to do with heaven. Uh, what's going to happen to you after you die? Now, Truth of the matter is this, most of us are not all that interested in heaven right now. Some of us a little bit more than others. Some of it has to do with your age, you know, how close you think you might be to the end of life. But, uh, but earlier in life especially, we, see, we tend to think of heaven as a sanitary white box up in the clouds. Who wants to go there, right? I mean, yeah, one day I'll get too old to really enjoy life. That might be the place to go. But, but heaven is the best place you could possibly imagine. You know that same God? that created you to enjoy music and hot cinnamon rolls and fishing and chocolate chip, chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream and good friends and sunsets and every other good thing on this earth that same god created heaven you don't think he knows what he's doing you don't think it's going to be better than it is here all the stuff that he said well i hate to go off and i don't want to go off and leave my wife i don't want to go off and leave my husband my parents my children or whatever you don't think it's better uh, in heaven we read this scripture Friday night at our Good Friday service, John 14, verse 1. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Don't worry. Don't be all upset about stuff. You believe in God. Believe also in me. That's a command. You believe in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. I like that. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you to myself that where I, where I am, there you may be also. Notice two very important things. The first one is this. Heaven is only for those who believe in Jesus. You know, you believe in me. You believe in me, I'm preparing a place for you. You have to have a reservation to get into heaven. And I, I just asked you the question, have you made your reservation? Or are you just planning to show up and, and say, well, you know, I, God, I, I know I didn't have time for you while I was on the earth. And I know I didn't believe anything that you had to say. And I know I never discovered uh, my purpose for being on the earth. But uh, I'd really appreciate it if you'd let me in. You're not going to have that option. Here's what Jesus said, John 1 and 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And so the first thing is, this heaven thing, it's available to those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, sometimes we call it being saved. Sometimes we call it being born again. Uh, you know, there's different phrases in Scripture, but mainly it, it means I give myself to Jesus. And the second thing about this heaven thing is this. Once you've trusted in Christ, once you've placed your, 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 your life in the hands of Christ, he's going to be sure you get there. You don't have to worry yourself sick about whether you're going to make it or not. Oh, no, did I commit the unpardonable sin? Oh, no, this. Oh, no, that. Oh, no, something else. I just need to do what God wants me to do, but Jesus is the one that gets me to heaven. So there's this promise about heaven. second promise has to do with the here and now. This is what most of us are interested in, you know. God, what can you do for me now? You know, God, what can you do for me today? Well, let me just say to you, God is interested in the things that worried you on the way to church today. God is interested in whatever you're thinking about this afternoon. God is thinking, God is interested in what you're interested in. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All you people that are working so hard, it just is about to drive you into the ground. Come, I'm going to give you some rest. Take my yoke, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Probably the greatest need in our postmodern, developed world is a little rest. Nobody can find time to rest. Most people are not living, they're just existing, they're just surviving. Have you ever thought about the fact that God didn't put you here just to survive, just to make it through the day and fall into the bed and get up the next morning and hope to retire one day and have some fun uh, before you eventually die? God puts you here for a purpose, and when you get in on God's purpose or God's plan, you'll be refreshed and invigorated. The reason that most people are in survival mo mode is because we're trying to play God. We're trying to take everything into our own hands. And God says to us, I never intended you for to make it on your own. No wonder you're tired all the time. You're trying to do everything yourself. I want to help you. I want a relationship with you. I want to give you strength for the day so you can make it. I read this story long ago. It happened in 1997 in Rancho Santa Fe, California. There was a cult that had gathered there in a mansion. That cult was known as Heaven's Gate Cult. I don't know if any of you remember the Heaven's Gate Cult or not. But... Uh, in 1997, 39 members of that cult in this mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, California, committed suicide. And they did this because there was a comet headed for the United States, the Hale-Bopp Comet, uh, which evidently outshined Halley's Comet, you know, head, headed, for, uh, headed for the Earth, not going to crash into the Earth or anything of that nature. What they thought was there was some sort of a UFO or a presence inside of this comet, and if they committed suicide, it was going to give them eternal life. 
And so they killed themselves. Now, one third, a 31-year-old woman videotaped herself making this statement before she died. Maybe they're crazy, you know, these other people that are going to commit suicide. Maybe they're crazy for all I know, but I don't have any choice. I have to go for it. You don't have any choice? There's a comet headed down here, and you think maybe there's a presence or a UFO or something inside the comet, and you're going to commit suicide? I mean, does that sound like the choice to make? I have to go for it. I've been on this planet for 31 years. Poor thing. About to die, 31 years of age. There's nothing here for me. So I said to myself, if that's what it takes, it's better than being around here with absolutely nothing to do. So, boom, I commit suicide. What a tragedy that this woman never realized that God said, you matter to me. I love you. I have a plan for your life. And, and if you'll just trust me and get in on my plan, everything won't go well for you. This is a broken planet we live on here. Bad stuff's going to happen all the time. But you can know that I am with you all the time. Now, hopefully you're not feeling suicidal this morning. Somebody might be, but hopefully you're not feeling suicidal this morning. But you may feel frustrated about some things in your life. Again, I'll I mentioned, you know, kids, marriage, family, finances, career not going anywhere, uh, not haven't been, you know, haven't found the right person in my life. My health is bad. And I'm going to say to you that you're not here by accident. I believe God brought you here today so that you could hear him say, I knew you before you were born. I loved you before you were born. I know all about you and I love you anyway. And I have the power to help you. I said Friday night that God gave us a friend and a family to help us make it through. The friend that God gave us is the Holy Spirit. Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came and indwells all who believe in him to empower us and give us wisdom and guide us and strengthen us each day. And the family, of course, could be your, your physical family, but more than that, it's your church family. God established churches because he, know he knows we can't make it on our own. Nobody can make it on their own. Everybody needs some help. That's what churches are all about, support groups, families, make, help us make it through and thrive in this life. Now, since God always keeps his promise, promises, and since God is in control, what should I do? How should I react to that? Believe that God always keeps his promises, God's in control, God's God. I think God wants you to do two things. Number one, he wants you to get to know him. Number two, he wants you to trust him. Now, you can't trust somebody until you get to know him a little bit. You don't trust people you don't know. Why should you? In order to trust God more, you have to get to know God more. And I want, you to, I want to assure you, if you believe me, that God has your best interests at heart. God only wants the best for you. He don't want to make you miserable or anything like that. If you don't know God through Jesus Christ, you've missed the whole point of Easter. That's what Easter is about. It's not about bunnies, and I like bunnies. Not about eggs. I, like, I love chocolate, you know. I like all that kind of stuff. That's not what Easter is about. Easter is about the fact that God left heaven, came to this earth, lived for you, and died for you, and rose again on the, 30 day, on the third day. God knows everything about you. He still loves you. He still wants you to know him, and he wants to, he wants to have a relationship with you. So this Easter, why not take the first step in knowing God?
and getting in on his plan. Last promise from God, I promise, is this. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever, regardless of your background or your gender or your age or your looks or your intelligence or your social status or anything else, regardless of all that, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now this is, a, this is an old illustration, but a goodie. Empty bottle, but you can see what kind of bottle that is, right? Suppose there was a medicine in this bottle. Brand new medicine cured any problem that there was. Got cancer, it'll take care of it. Got AIDS, it'll take care of it. Got Alzheimer's. What's in here will take care of it. Got a broken heart? Handles that kind of stuff too. Bouncing from one job to the next, can't get settled down? It helps with that. Overwhelmed by life? It takes care of that. Ashamed of what you've done in the past? Takes care of that. Here it is. You only have to do one thing. Take it. Accept it. Now don't come up and get the bottle afterward because it's really empty. I didn't leave any medicine in there, but medicine is worthless until you take it. And that's all you have to do is take it, accept it. That's what Easter is all about. God made some promises, and he always keeps his promises. I don't always keep my promises. And you don't always keep your promises. We do the best we can most of the time, but we... We don't make it all the time, but God always keeps his promises, and God cares about you. God, God he, he loves you just as much as he loves the greatest man or woman that's ever walked on the face of this planet. He, he loves you just as much. And this Easter, he would like for you to place your faith and trust in him, or if you've already done that, he would like for you to commit to live your life in such a way that you would honor him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus left heaven, came here, lived as one of us, grew up without sinning, died just because he loved us, rose with power over hell and over death. Give us the grace to trust in you, to get to know you better, to invest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, shall we?